Keeping Democracy Alive with Bert Cohen. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans in the South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're only seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. The magic of history. That's what today's show is about for sure. Mark Twain reportedly said, history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. Think about that as we discuss ecstatic nation, confidence, crisis, and compromise, 1848 to 1877. Our guest is author Brenda Wineapple. Thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well, this uh, book has gotten uh, great reviews. New York Times notable book of 2013. It combines political and cultural history to tell the complex story of how America faced the crime of slavery. And we'll think about, did America really face the crime of slavery? Uh, Other views include White Heat, The Friendship of Emily Dickinson and Thomas Wentworth Higginson. Well, again, I hope listeners will keep two things in mind, that history kind of rhymes. And two, during the war, the so-called civil war, it wasn't really a civil war because it wasn't two sides trying to take over one government. But during the war, a surgeon treating the wounded remarked, all that once told of civilized elegance now speaks of ruthless barbarism. That's what the war did. It seems that this reflects the changes in the period during the Civil War, the period of which you write. You write that, in some ways, some of the same discussions we were having then are still with us today, issues regarding race and political feuding. There must be at least hundreds of books on the Civil War. Why did you write this book? Well, there are several reasons. One is that I wanted to place the war in a context. In other words, many books, um, many history books that deal with the war or part of the war treat the war as if it didn't happen in the context of a before and an after and that it didn't happen in the context of people who were living or people who were writing books. And I was always fascinated by the period um, that you have here, 30-year period from 1848 to 1877, when such figures as Abraham Lincoln and Ulysses S. Grant were contemporaries of Mark Twain, Emily Dickinson, Herman Melville, Walt Whitman, P.T. Barnum, Victoria Woodhull, Susan B. Anthony, they all occupied the same historical moment. So it seemed to me that the war was part of this you know, very large, very complicated moment, and I wanted to do something um, that seemed a little different and gave us a fresh 
path through the events that we think we know and, and largely do know. And Brenda Wineapple, where did this title come from, Ecstatic Nation? That That's a very interesting and unique title. Thank you. Um, it, yes, it, it comes from a poem by Emily Dickinson. That uh, The first line of the poem is, The heart is the capital of the mind. And in some ways she talks about uh, a breaking uh, nation and a nation that comes together. Um, and uh, so the... Uh, words ecstatic nation come from that specific poem and and I liked the idea of ecstatic nation because it seemed to me though that though we sometimes think of ecstatic as being you know wildly happy that it also suggested a kind of frenzy freneticism hysteria the ability to stand outside of oneself the excitement of liberation. Um, so it seemed to me a very complicated word that would, in some sense, encapsulate uh, this particular time. There certainly was a lot of uh, religious feeling that there worked people up to a frenzy on both the North and the South, uh, right. for sure. Well, uh, another thing that's very interesting in this period um, is not only the various religious revivals and the fact that uh, a lot of uh, religious evangelicism found its way into abolitionists, but that you have the development and the rise and the significance of the first uh, Native American, I mean indigenous American, I don't mean Indian, um, American religion, and that is Mormonism. And uh, the Mormons became very prosperous, very powerful, uh, and uh, very important to American culture at this period. Uh, in our history. They settled in the West, finally, in Utah. And again, you don't really necessarily think of Mormons and the rise of Mormonism at a, you know, in the period of the Civil War, but there you have it. It's happening exactly the same time. And, uh, you know, things always happen within the context, and right. it, it appears that individualism, rugged individualism, uh, was as mythic then as it is today. And Mormonism was, was pretty much taking that on and really going in the opposite direction. Yes, it uh, had a much more uh, collective field, feel where everyone is presumably um, you know, part of a, a larger group and right. uh, pays one's money to the larger group and farms together um, in, in a way that seems almost a kind of alternate uh, right. American universe um, mm -hmm. with its own practices. And as a result, um, it came into confrontation mm -hmm. uh, with <laughs> the government. This was before the Civil War with Buchanan, um, President Buchanan, because, you know, the question was, well, who really owns this territory? The Utah Territory, is it the Mormons? Are they allowed to practice whatever they want to, or should they be part of the body politic? And that raises the question of citizenship that mm -hmm. you touched on. You know, this period is a very interesting period because it redefines what it is to be an American citizen. Mm. And by the end of the war, of course, um, not only do you have the abolition of slavery, but you have the enfranchisement of black men as citizens who are able to, theoretically, able to vote. 
And it also brings up one theme that, that seems to go, uh, at least in the, in the later part of the book, about uh, popular sovereignty. Who gets right. to decide? And this was a big, big change as a result of uh, the presidency of Abraham Lincoln, at least as I reach it, read sure. it. No, absolutely. You know, one of the interesting things, you know, when I was working on the book, I would try to make connections, you know, with um, events or people that seemed not to have been connected previously, and you bring up popular sovereignty. And um, I was, you know, as we were just speaking about the Mormons, and I was wondering, uh, what does the rise of Mormonism have to do with, say, the Lincoln-Douglas debate, um, which was happening around the same time, the 18th, you know, late 1850s? And then I realized that the answer was popular sovereignty, and popular sovereignty, as you suggested, is the ability for a community, group of people, to vote up or down whatever practices uh, or laws that they want. It's very much still with us Absolutely. as a concept. Um, the problem with popular sovereignty, um, as Lincoln was very quick to point out to Douglas, was that then a group of people could vote uh, to uh, extend or keep slavery, um, which, you know, seems an absolute, you know, seems absolutely abhorrent. So it's very interesting in that particular regard. At the extreme, I think today, popular sovereignty um, plays into our sense of uh, libertarianism. You mm-hmm. ask how some of these issues are still with us today, and I Absolutely. think that's one way in which they are. But you're right, with Lincoln's presidency, of course, he was basically, I'm going to find a way to write uh, emancipation into the Constitution, mm. which then is federally authorized, in that particular case, covers all the states. We're talking with author Brenda Wineapple about her new book, Ecstatic Nation. And you talk about the, the uh, Stephen Douglas-Abraham Lincoln uh, debates. Of course, everybody knows that. They, they had very similar views on race. They both agreed that, that whites were the superior race. But that was basically, I mean, that was everywhere at the time. The big difference was on popular sovereignty. Is there, it seems to me there's a strain of Douglas's views that are still active when he said, let the North be the North, the South be the South, and all regions really be deciding for themselves. And, and you wrote that, that even abolitionist Horace Greeley wrote that, quote, we are two peoples. We are two peoples. Seems to me he was right then, one could argue, that we're still two peoples. Don't the, the Tea Partiers of today, seeing how it, it, it rhymes and doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme, that I mean, they they see what the Southerners at the time called an autocratic, centralized government. I mean, isn't this debate still going on very, very full force? Yes, it is going on. That's what I was, you know, alluding to when I said a kind of libertarianism, you know, whatever political party it might be. But the interesting thing about even Stephen Douglas um, that you mentioned before um, and his, his idea of popular sovereignty, which was his idea of democracy, and as you you know, correctly point out that you could uh, link that to the Tea Party. But Douglas, like Lincoln, believed in one nation. Um, and when um, Lincoln was uh, running for president and it became clear that the South was threatening to secede if he were elected, uh, Douglas began campaign- campaigning, not for Lincoln, but for the idea of a single unified nation, he did not want the nation to split apart. You know, and um, that sense of, you know, what it is to make a more perfect union 
uh, really linked both uh, Douglas and Lincoln and many other people because, of course, they thought of secession not just as treason, um, but as destroying as a wonderful experiment that had been, you know, put together by um, a group of men separating from England in the 18th right. century, and they right. were committed to preserving that union uh, in one form or another. Of course, it didn't work out that way uh, for a while. That's why the war was slaughtered, one of the many reasons. But um, mm-hmm. but but certainly that um, that feeling that we are more alike than different actually did motivate Douglas. Mm-hmm. He just believed very strongly that the government, federal government, shouldn't um, authorize uh, or, the sh- you know, should not, uh, should allow people to vote whether they wanted to have slavery or not. And, of course, Lincoln, who may have shared some of Douglas's views, as many did, about um, black right. um, ability, about the ability of the, you know, former slave or the free person, also felt that um, that one should be able to have the fruits, enjoy the fruits of one's own labor, so that if you work, then you should get paid for your work, number one. You know, and that sort of brings back to the issue of slavery. Nobody should own somebody else and tell them what to do. Lincoln was very clear about that. Well, Lincoln uh, initially thought that slavery would disappear in due time. Uh, I, I wonder... If this approach had been taken, and I love to, you know, what ifs, I think that's perfectly fair to do in looking at history. Sure. Do you not think that the incredible violent racism that occurred in the decades after the war uh, might have been uh, avoided? How? What do you mean? Avoid? Well, if, if slavery had just been allowed to disappear. But and, it wasn't going to disappear. I mean, that's the interesting thing. It was a very lucrative labor system for the South. Um, they were profiting, you know, many, many people, not everybody in the South, certainly, but the planter class was profiting enormously and, and, um, yes. and, um, and, and exporting cotton. And so for economic reasons, um, as well as perhaps others, um, the, the South wasn't going to let slavery go so fast. In other words, there was no sense, I mean, the, the you know, that it was going to just wither away or disappear. That's the first thing, because the economic motives. The second thing is, mm. um, even if that were true, let's say, there was a man named John O'Sullivan, who was right. a Democrat, oh, yes. and he, he wrote, um, he edited a very important magazine called the Democratic Review, and that was his point of view, you know, well, it'll disappear eventually, it'll go away. That was his way, by the way, of saying, I don't want to deal with this issue. But the real point underneath that, that many, many people, Horace Greeley and others, could see, I think even the South, you know, even people in the South um, who were ambivalent about the system could see, is that in the meantime, let's say it takes 10, 20, 30 years, what about the people who are enslaved? You know, <laughs> I mean, you're talking about one or two generations who have to suffer an incredible indignity. And that's what somebody like Lincoln, who wasn't really an abolitionist, right. was very aware of. Yeah, he, he was certainly not an abolitionist uh, right off. I don't want to just get entirely focused on slavery. The decades going well into the 20th century yeah. were brutal 
for well, blacks. Absolutely. And, and in a sense, uh, you know, my book ends in, uh, you know, 1877, which is after the election of Ruther B. Hayes, and historians uh, understand that particular election as marking the end of Reconstruction mm-hmm. because Hayes pulled the uh, federal troops out of the South. Um, and at that time, in the 1870s, you saw tremendous um, massacres in, in the streets of Memphis yeah. and New Orleans. You saw riots uh, against black people. You saw, you know, as you're saying, terrible kind of backlash from the war. But at the same time, in that particular period, quite a number of uh, black men were uh uh, elected to legislatures, not just locally, but sent to the United States Congress uh, for a very short period of time. There was actually a black governor of Louisiana. And some of them lived. He said people could vote, which they never had been able to do, and were free. So that is a, is a thrilling and amazing thing that happened. Unfortunately, what you're talking about, especially at the end of the century, is the introduction of Jim Crow, right, right. which in some ways turned back the clock in terms of civil rights for black men and women, um, and it turned back the clock until the 1960s, really, with the passage of the civil rights legislation. But for a while, after the war and in the early 1870s, a time of tremendous promise and exuberance, because slavery was gone. Well, there is a, another book I, I highly recommend, Slavery by Another Name by, uh, oh, I can't think of uh, his last name now, but uh, an amazing book about how slavery actually continued into the 20th century and was even supported by, by some laws. And slavery obviously became the big issue. Andrew Johnson, after Lincoln was assassinated, how, how you talk a bit about how his presidency dealt with blacks and the white ex-Confederate soldiers. Didn't he, mm-hmm. in a way, seek to reinstate slavery and openly restore white men rule? Well, Johnson is an interesting problem, if you will, and remember that he was impeached. Yes. Um, Andrew Johnson was a Southerner. He was from Tennessee, and he was a very strong Unionist, and because of both things, because of his because he was from the South and because or border state, and because he was a Unionist, he was on the ticket with Lincoln. Um, the assassination of Lincoln, which catapulted Johnson into the presidency, mm-hmm. it first pleased people because you know people in Congress thought that he was going to continue uh, with what they assumed Lincoln's um, Reconstruction program would be. Um, the Congress at this particular time was very eager to enfranchise. Uh, black men to ensure civil rights, uh, to really um, um, restore, in many ways, the dignity to people for whom you know who had had no dignity, who you know to provide um, a transition from slavery into full labor and full citizenship. The problem with Johnson was that pretty soon it became clear that he wanted to stop all of this progressive right. legislation, turn back the clock, um, and enfranchise uh, ex-Confederates as many as possible Give them back uh, power, under yeah. very, you know, very um, easy kind of terms. Hmm. Now, I-, I wonder if Reconstruction could have gone on. There was, I mean, the South, unlike the North, was devastated, just 
totally yes that was that that's terrible most most of the war was fought in the south and of course um it, you know the deprivations were were enormous people didn't have food right. um farms were left you know without anybody to do the farming um it was it was really terrible what happened to the south and the the white southerners you know, who were so devastated it was so easy to blame people you could see looked different, black people who had been slaves. I wonder if Reconstruction could have continued. There was such tremendous anger at that. And as you said, a lot of people, uh, you know, black people, former slaves, got elected. Some of them were even uh, killed and murdered. There was, uh, you know, terrific riots, like in 1866. Maybe you could talk about right. that a little bit. New, New Orleans in 1866. Right, but that, don't forget that that's partly because, and I'm not blaming him entirely, but that's partly because um, there was a kind of friend in the White House. I think, uh-huh. I think with a different leadership, I mean, and it's, you know, again, it's a question of what if, um, the South at this particular point, devastation, looking for economic help, if it had gotten that kind of help, if, um, if there had been a kind of, let's say, almost a Marshall Plan for mm-hmm. the South, I think that you wouldn't have seen quite the virulence, you know, quite the violence of the backlash that you uh, did see. I think there were many, many people, uh, white and black, who were really ready to pitch in and to try to um, make uh, make that country, you know, those states, those cities, those farms work. Uh, unfortunately, um, as time went on, uh, Democrats, white Democrats or former, former Confederates got stronger and stronger. And as I say, I think it's partly because, to a certain extent, of Johnson and then partly because a lot of resources were pulled out of, economic resources pulled out of the South. So, of course, things could have gone a different way, but it's, you know, hindsight is right. so comfortable in a sense and... Um, you know, we can say it should have been this, should have been that. It's hard to really know. But I do think that there was a revolution that occurred in the South, and I think there was a tremendous amount of promise. I think that promise really wasn't fulfilled, um, which it could have been and should have been. But but I think that it was, you know, that what we're talking about also, um, those kinds of devastations, really you don't see them as, as horribly as you do in the 80s and 90s. Um, by then, a group of people called the Redeemers yes. who wanted to redeem and bring back, you know, in a sense, uh, bring back the world before the war, uh, just without slavery, were, um, you know, were in power. But not so much in the 60s and 70s. Um, but it was a time of tremendous transition and tremendous change. And, you know, people don't like change. No, they don't. And I, I think it was fascinating to point out, I mean, there's still a lot of religiosity now and mm-hmm. and back then there was that you know ecstasy if you will of of religion uh on on both sides certainly uh William Henry Seward from the north who became uh I believe secretary of state he said right. he said there is a higher law than the right. constitution right there were moral absolutists both in the north and the south right and right, and, right. and and, right. and and you know that that Thoreau has a chapter in Walden called higher laws you know, and when it's in literature, when it's Thoreau saying that there's a higher law of freedom, um, we tend to believe it. When Seward says it in a higher law than the Constitution, 
Um, that is so incendiary. Yes. Um, it angered so many people because, you know, people could turn around from the north and the south or the south uh, and say, how do you know yeah, what really? the higher law is? We need, we need man-made laws in order to keep the government going. Um, you could understand his impulse. His impulse is very much like William Lloyd Garrison, yes. the, the abolitionist, you know, founder of the Liberator, who, you know, um, burned a copy of the Constitution, basically saying uh, no oh. compromises with tyranny, that the Constitution is a document that perpetuates slavery. Um, that is a kind of moral absolutism, absolutely. No doubt about it. Um, very incendiary. Yeah, go ahead. And, and, of course, today, once again, there's great frustration throughout these currently United States about the gridlock and dysfunction in Washington. Right. And at the start of the period of which you write, you point out that, quote, the country had been founded in compromise. Compromise was right. a strategy, not necessarily a capitulation. Compromise was an art. It was state statesmanship. Right. And yet, as you go on to say, the word would, in the next years, become an epithet. Right. So here it is, you know, moral absolutism. The idea of compromise was just, forget about it. It was an epithet. Right, because on both sides, because the other side, you know, from William Henry Stewart, is says, you know, the higher law than the Constitution, someone like Alexander Stevens in the South, from Georgia, becomes vice president of the Confederacy, he says, yeah, more or less, he says, the higher law is slavery. So, you know, you get right. that kind of uh, stalemate and standoff. It's absolutely horrific, and you realize in this particular period, uh, people are becoming more and more and more polarized and less and less able to really listen to each other, mm. and in some sense, more and more warmongering, which is devastating because we, of course, unlike them, know what's happening, although there were many, many people from Jefferson to Henry Clay who said basically you know, they hear the fire bell in the night. They are afraid that if war comes, it's going to be absolutely um, devastating and, and uh, a bloodbath, which in fact it was. Oh, absolutely. If you just tuned in, guest today is Brenda Wineapple, author of The New Ecstatic Nation, about the period from 1848 to 1877. Lots of fun back then. I love this quote, I have to say, from, from Alexander Hamilton Stevenson, a Georgia congressman. When he retired from the Congress, I believe it was just before the war, the, he could see the tension between the anti-slavery Republicans and Southern Democrats. He said, rather presciently, I love this, he said, when I am on one of two trains yeah. coming in opposite directions on a single track, both engines at high speed, both engineers drunk, I get off at the first station. <laughs> that was. I shouldn't laugh, but you know, it, the, the the amazing thing is that that it, people um, like Stevens, with whom you could disagree in many many ways, they were. They were eloquent, yes. and they were far-seeing, tremendous insight. He knew that we were on a collision course, and yet, as you quote him, and it says that the engineers driving these trains seem to be drunk. and um, Going full speed ahead toward each other. Exactly. So he was smart to get off at that first station. Well, he got off, and then he didn't. As I said, then he winds up being vice president of the Confederacy. So, well. But... Yeah, he, he had just been so frustrated, as so many were, by the intransigence um, of extremists on both sides. We can talk about how that 
stalemate seems so similar to what we see yes, today. Yes, absolutely. You know, and it's it's so upsetting and frustrating. Um, the only positive, or not the only, but a positive thing I can say about that is that at least the issue isn't human bondage. I mean, right. it really True. blows the mind when you think that not so long ago, one person could own another person. And that's really what was at stake. Yeah, it certainly uh, ended up being at stake. I, I Well, the West was a huge part of what was going on at this period of time and would continue uh, you know, well into the, uh, the 20th century. The West was said to be a chessboard in the great game between the North and the South. In what ways did the West fit into what you call the ticklish economic balance between yeah. the South and North? What did you mean I'm by glad, that? I'm glad you brought that up because your earlier question of, you know, why did this book, you know, what was going to be different about it. Um, one of the things that was very important to me is that the contest um, of the middle of the 19th century wasn't just between North and South. The West was a real was a real player and a pawn both at the same time because after the Mexican-American War, uh, the United States acquired quite a bit of territory, some of which we consider the West, like California um, and uh, the Arizona, you know, territory. And part of the, um, you know, part of the match that lit the flame was, you know, that there was the war was the West because the question was, well, is the West, you know, some of these new states and territories, Nebraska territory, is it going to be free or slave? So that's one way in which the West was really a pawn in this dreadful uh, game, um, not really a game, right. but, you know, sort of uh, contest between the North and the South. But even beyond that, and if there is a beyond that, I should say in addition to that, mm. one of the things about the West that's important, it's so important, is it's a you know, tremendously rich in natural resources. Oh, yes. And in the period we're talking about, we're not talking about oil, we're talking about um, gold. We're not talking about black gold, we're talking about real gold, yeah. yellow gold. Yeah. And of course, gold had been you know, discovered in California, and then there was said to be gold, and there was tremendous mineral deposits in the Dakota Hills, and um, mining uh, companies uh, certainly wanted to um, find that gold and um, or minerals and profit from it. So there was a tremendous excitement about the economic possibilities of the West, and of course the West um, opened up the the sense of um, that you could, you know, change your life, go somewhere new, and there were tremendous numbers of settlers who moved West, especially after uh, the railroad went farther and farther west. So, so in the sense of that there was movement of people, there was a look for, you know, a search for prosperity and second chances, uh, that there was richness and natural resources, and that there was a potential for, before the war, uh, the extension of slavery, um, makes the West a really important part of what goes on uh, in the 19th century. The, the West was such a, a big part of it. The, the railroads, where they went, right. the, the uh, federal support for the railroads was a really right. big deal at the time. And it, also in this period, there were a lot of big technological innovations Right. What, what were some of those, and how did they transform the country and American 
attitudes toward the world regarding our leadership, even control and dominance of the entire world? What were some of these? <laughs> well, well, the good news for me was that since the country was, was really redefining itself, um, I, I didn't, this, this book doesn't really deal with America's sort of international role, which right. was not as significant as significant as it would become toward the end of the century. Yeah. Right now we're concerned with getting our domestic house in order. So that was, you know, my concern. But interestingly enough, um, some of the innovations you mentioned, technological innovations, would bring uh, the United States into an international position of power. But before that, you know, certainly you see everything from, we mentioned the railroads, mm-hmm. I and mean, that's incredible, and you think you can get Huge. from here to there quickly, that you can move during the war men and munitions, and after the war you can move settlers out west, they don't have to take these wagon trains, um, that you can, you know, um, move, uh, you know, um, uh, materials, you know, goods. Um, so that's really quite important, the development of the railroad, and it developed rather rapidly, especially in the North and West, partly because of the war. And after the war, you've got the first transcontinental railroad developed, which is really exciting that you can get from coast to coast. So there was that. But then there are other things you may not even think about. The development of photography and period begins. There really isn't any kind of mass photography. By the end of the period, um, everyone could have pictures of anyone else. You could have a picture of your favorite general, Robert E. Lee, or Ulysses S. Grant, or you could have a picture of your husband or wife. Um, and uh, you suddenly see the world in a very different way when you can actually distribute images of it. We move into a very visual culture at that particular point. So that's really very exciting in, in that sense, too, tremendous technological advance, um, it's hard for us to think about a world now with you know, people's cell phones taking pictures sure. all the time, that that was you know, a technology that was so new and that the, in, in, during the Civil War, it was the first war that was photographed from beginning by end, mm. beginning to end by you know, private people. The Crimean War, um, you know, England had sent um, uh, uh, government but here there were private people photographing the war. Some of our sense of the Civil War and its horror um, uh, comes from those pictures we see, see of Gettysburg or Antietam. Yeah, we Both. could see it, all the uh, incredible yeah. bodies lying around. And wasn't there, uh, at least briefly during this period, the, the transatlantic cable to communicate t- a telegraph? Yeah, that's interesting because, yeah, it was briefly, as you said. Yeah. I mean, it was developed in the 1850s. Everyone was very excited President Buchanan talked, said hello to Queen Victoria, um, and there was a sense that the United States was going to be connected to the world. Interesting for my purposes and symbolically, too, was that shortly after it was developed, it failed. And so certainly for the period of 1850s and 1860s, there was a sense in which America was cut off from the rest of the world. As I said, it was getting its domestic house in order, even though, of course, um, both the South and the North wanted countries like England or France to come in the war on one of their sides. Mm. Um, that did not happen. 
and uh, of course, Cuba played an interesting role and sort of fit in even uh, Cuba, yeah. Even even with the West, fascinating. We, when we think of the term filibuster, it means one thing: it means somebody talking forever. Uh, but it meant something quite different then than it does now. And and how did Cuba fit in with the idea of manifest destiny and the American yeah, West? Interesting. Well, you know, one of the things, as I said earlier, I wanted a kind of fresh approach to to this period, and and one way that you know struck me um, had something had been left out entirely, and I began the book with the expeditions of groups of men uh, from the north and the south to Cuba. They were not federally authorized expeditions, but these people thought that, and they had quite a bit of money. They had backing. They had shipping backing. Um, and uh, in some cases, they had, you know, senators on the QT backing them, and they thought that they could go to Cuba, invade the country. Cuba was then uh, possession of Spain, oust the Spanish, and quote-unquote liberate Cuba, yeah. but the liberation would be of such that Cuba would then be annexed to the United States, and it would be carved up into two slave states. So actually... The sense of manifest destiny, oh, we have, we can, we can develop anywhere, we can go, we have this destiny, we have this, with this mission and the sense of right. freedom, um, was complicated even in the 19th century because, of course, that mission of freedom said nothing about freeing the slaves, it was just a way to extend the uh, power of the South. Of course, right. these expeditions, as you say, they're called filibustering expeditions, and, um, <laughs> the good news is they didn't work out so well, and, and the American government really found out about it and, and you know, uh, put a stop to it. Well, it was somewhat comical, but, you know, wanting to spread slavery, the, the South wanted to spread slavery to the West and, mm-hmm. and just be stronger. And I thought it was fascinating that even uh, a lot of people in the North didn't want to count slaves as persons. And, right. and, and there's a good explanation for that. Well, that's part of the Constitution. That was part of the Constitutional Compromise. Uh, slaves were to be counted as three-quarters of a person. So you realize that when you talk about the North and the South, it's not really fair um, to sort of separate them in, in the sense of, oh, the North is for freedom and abolition right. and human rights, and the South is, is much more regressive than that. You have to see that the North was in collusion with the South right from the get-go and was allo- you know, and allowed slavery to to persist in order to create the country. That's the first thing. And the second thing, in terms of the textile mills, in terms of cotton, in terms of yep. economic yep. production, uh, the, you know, northern uh, mills uh, were profiting from slaves uh, as much as, you know, southern plantations were. Yes, and, and it was, uh, some people suggested that the, that the northern mills were not that much different uh, from slavery, really. Right, because of the conditions that the workers faced, particularly, for example, um, there was a tremendous disaster in Lawrence, yes. Massachusetts, um, and it was, at the time, it was the, you know, worst industrial disaster that the United States had ever had. And basically, one of the factories um, in Lawrence um, it had been kind of shoddily put together uh, to increase production at the expense of the workers. It imploded. Many, many people were killed. And it became a very, you know, hot uh, congressional debate about it where many Southerners were saying, you know, you, 
say we have a terrible system, look at the system that you have in the North where you lock your workers in and this, this terrible accident happened and so many were killed. Yes, it, it uh, the exploitation has been there for a long time, and uh, yeah. there's, there's still the the capitalist system. And talk about the burgeoning of, of capitalism. And another fascinating figure from the era of which you write is Phineas T. Barnum. Yeah, you write that Barnum declared that the people got their money's worth in the untruths they happily paid for. Yeah, <laughs> I love that line. The people got their money's worth and the untruths they happily paid for. And besides, the greater the fiction, Barnum said, the greater the truth. He also mm-hmm. noted that his hodgepodge of curiosities was a kind of democracy in action. Yeah. How did Barnum symbolize a, a part of that period? Well, you know, one of the things, one of the, one of the um, things I like to do is bring together uh, disparate peoples and outlooks, and one of, and Barnum to me, was a kind of um, Whitman, <laughs> you know, the poet Whitman, who was also uh-huh. writing at the same time. Actually, Whitman had um, had interviewed Barnum at one point when Whitman was working for the Brooklyn Daily Eagle, and it seems to me both of them were embracing multitudes. You know, they were saying, America is diverse, America is weird, yeah, there's <laughs> a lot of things, people, classes, you know, um, ideas going on in America, a lot of innovations. And in Barnum, you know, that what he's doing is he's bringing them all together in this museum. And if he's creating grotesqueries or um, exhibitions that we might kind of look at askance, he was saying, look, people want to see this, so they're going to pay and they're going to come to see it. So and in some sense, creates a kind of commercial culture yeah. that we think of as, you know, sometimes horrible today. But at the same time, he is embracing multitudes, which uh, uh, Whitman was too, and saying, you know, all things are in some sense equal, and they're amusing and exciting, and let's take a look at them. Let's equalize them. And the free market was kind of a great equalizer that way, that people could go out and buy whatever fantasy they wanted. Um Got to get back a little bit to uh, the, the the war itself. I mean, obviously, that's a huge part of the period. Uh, James Buchanan preceded Lincoln, not one of our better presidents, I got the impression. He, he consciously chose not to reinforce Fort Sumter, right. believing that that had he done so, that would imply military invention, intervention, which would stoke the fires of secession. Right. Uh, and Lincoln basically baited the South into firing first. Do, do people get this? How significant is this? It wasn't exactly a false flag, but, you know, sort of the Gulf of Tonkin, uh, you know, that you need, the other guys have to start it. D- did Lincoln choose the war? No, I don't think so. I really don't think so. But what Lincoln was, or Lincoln had, from my point of view, was a real backbone, which is something that James Buchanan lacked, you know, and he basically said, that these are, you know, this is a government facility, and there are men here, and we have every right to uh, reinforce, you know, send supplies. It wasn't even sending munitions, re- you know, send supplies to these men uh, at Sumter at, or Moultrie. And, um, and, uh, and he was within his legal rights. Lincoln was always, you know, very clear about uh, the legal issues. Now, if you call that baiting or starting the war, well, yeah, but in fact, he was put in that position because uh, because 
you know, the uh, in, in, in uh, South Carolina had said, well, no, basically you can't do this in a way. And, um, and Lincoln said, yeah, we're going to send, we're, we're going to do that. We're going to rescue these men. We're going to make sure that they're fed. And we gave, and, and Lincoln gave them uh, ample notice. The, the thing about Buchanan and his vacillation and his reinf- you know, refusal to reinforce um, uh, Moultrie and, uh, and, and Sumter, Sumter, which was basically um, a death sentence for these men, was that it allowed a couple of things that it did. It allowed the South to mobilize, you know, because it gave them more time. It was clear where they were going with all of this. Um, and it, it basically showed... Um, no conviction about the maintenance of the Union. And, and Lincoln was very clear about that, that this is a country um, that, and, and if you secede from it, that is treasonous, and there's ample reason to um, reinforce that sense of Union. It goes all the way back to a different kind of president, the Democrat, Andrew Jackson. And, uh, of course, uh there's different points of view about what was uh, conservative, what was the Constitution. Jefferson Davis, now this is an echo of today, he said, we are conservative. He felt they were protecting the Constitution. And it seems, you know, he he said that uh, secession was a war of independence against a brutal despot from the North. A lot of people are are still saying that now. They see uh, President Obama as this despot with tremendous power, you know, and that the real Constitution is for more uh, diverse popular sovereignty. There we go again. And, and you know, it, it, we're, we're echoing and, and rhyming with, with that. M- many of us, uh, you know, the, the, the war, it, now the figures are g- guesstimates of about 800,000 out of about 30 million people. It was just unbelievable devastation at the time. And many of us right. today know about the uh, the so-called Christmas truce in the Great War, the First World War, where Germans and British, who had been right. shooting at each other, got up uh, and, and sang together in the First World War. There's a, a similar story in your book, and I wonder if I could ask if you could read a little bit of that. It's just a one-paragraph fascinating story about how Americans hated killing each other. They hated it, but they do it, did it, and they and then they did it with a certain kind of uh, plum um, and a plum. Um, but the story you're referring to um, occurs in, you know, even as late as 1863, and as I say, a little bit before that, you know, the battlefields were hotter and more ferocious. They had become more bloody. That, in some sense, Washington and Richmond continued bickering. Um, there was there was you know. Uh, warmongering and invective and vitriol, but there was also some aversion to killing one's own countrymen. And this yes. is where I'll read what you're asking. Even as late as 1863, on the eve of battle, the Federals and the Confederates at Stones River, Tennessee, went back and forth, one group singing Yankee Doodle, the other replying with Dixie, until one of the Army bands changed the tune and began Home Sweet Home. In moments, thousands of Yankees and Reds who tomorrow would kill each other, wrote the historian James McPherson, were singing the familiar words together. Ah, there's humans. It's terrible, really, when you think that they both want to go home. They're both singing 
home sweet home. And then as soon as they stop, of course, what have is, you know, almost in direct proportion, proportion to that reluctance, you know, viciousness, brutality, rage. Oh, it, was, it was so horrible, and so many people died just out there in the fields. They didn't have mm-hmm. identification, just, just really unbelievable. If you just tuned in, our guest today is Brenda Wineapple, author of the new book, Ecstatic Nation. Uh, quite quite a story. And another what-if looking at Gettysburg provided Lincoln with a chance to say, aha, we're winning. Now, but for a few military decisions and calculations, it seems that the Confederates might actually have won at Gettysburg. What if they had? <laughs> well, I, I can't even answer that. I don't know anyway. <laughs> What you what you find what you what what you have to realize and even if they had and you're right you know these things so many so many things in war are decided by you know accident even in some sense Gettysburg began when it began by accident um, you know and if this had happened that had happened the tide would have changed but but the truth of the matter what is that that the North had more men yes. you know and one of the yes. reasons that Grant, um, who became beloved in some ways, was also hated and called, you know, a butcher, was that he was willing to throw men uh, at the South, you know, and and it became almost a war of attrition at right. a certain point. Right. Um, so if, if the South, if the Confederates had won Gettysburg, certainly their morale would have lifted enormously. Um, but their, you know, their funds, their numbers of men, um, the conditions with which both Confederates and Federals had to fight, dysentery, sickness, mm. um, that would have persisted. So it's hard to say. Um, one of the things, you know, Gettysburg and later, uh, even perhaps more important, was uh, Savannah and uh, Atlanta and Sherman, yeah. those cities. Um, what that did was help Lincoln get elected in 1864. So it seems to me that even the battles were important, but also politics worked very closely with the battles because in 1864, if Lincoln hadn't been elected, then you know, then that's the question: what might have happened? Well, and and as you point out, in Springfield, Illinois, Lincoln's hometown, in 1863. There was a forty thousand people strong rally to protest Lincoln and the war. Right, well, uh, people were tired of war. Yeah. People were very, very tired of war, and and you can understand why. Oh, sure. In, in many cases, but even many Democrats, McClellan included, and McClellan ran against Lincoln. Were they were war Democrats in that they they did not want to surrender. Or they did not want to. You know, they did not want to give up. They were they were willing to prosecute uh, the war, but it was it was very complicated, certainly at that particular time, because you know the death tolls on both sides were stupefying. Yeah, yeah, absolutely amazing. Uh, what, and and looking at the the outcome of the war, I wonder if you could describe the power of the federal government after the war. Is a concentrated centralized, consolidated federal power 
a legacy of Lincoln. And is that not still a big issue in 2014? Well, yeah. You know, one of the things that was interesting to me and is, I think, still true today is the constant um, struggle between the executive branch of power, you know, of government, that is the president, and the legislative, which is Congress. And, you know, over time, or throughout history, throughout, you know, looking at the 19th century now, or even into the 20th, you see that there's that struggle goes on back and forth. And there are times when Congress is much more powerful than the executive and vice versa. Lincoln uh, came to leadership, and he was, he was a, a leader. He really was a leader in a way that uh, his predecessors, Franklin Pierce and James Buchanan, were not. Andrew Jackson was a leader. George Washington was a leader. You know, um, And then in the later part of the 19th century, you don't remember Benjamin Harrison, someone like that, as much of a leader. Even McKinley, uh, you get Teddy Roosevelt as a, as a leader, um, in a sense. And that, what I mean by leader in that context, strong executive. At the same time, there are times when Congress is enormously powerful, and certainly right after the Civil War, when you have a struggle between Andrew Johnson, who wasn't elected, he inherited in the sense of presidency, and Congress that had prosecuted the war, and had you know, many of the congressmen had been in their seats for you know for periods from before during and after the war, mm-hmm. they themselves did not want to give up the what had been fought for, when they thought Andrew Johnson did, so that you get that struggle in that context. And then you get the struggle between Grant, when he becomes president, also, and Congress. Tremendous um, stalemate, I think, in those particular times, too, and where Congress becomes, I think, for a while more dominant. So you do get that all the time throughout history, and I think we're in one of those periods now when Congress and the executive are at loggerheads, um, both asserting yes. kind of primacy and, um, and, and not necessarily able to work together. And legitimacy of power, that old thing about uh, popular sovereignty. And yeah. I thought it was fascinating. You write that in the 1870s, extreme poverty rubs shoulders with vast wealth. Well, that's, that's certainly here today. And uh, Wendell Phillips, another one of your many amazing characters in the book, there was a quote from him. We may have conquered Southern armies, but we have not conquered Southern values. Yeah. It seems to me a lot of these same Southern values are quite alive in today's Tea Party. What's your take on that? Well, I, I wouldn't even call them Southern in a certain sense. And, uh, you know, and, and the interesting thing from what I know of the Tea Party is that actually began, it, it formed um, uh, before uh, the current president, before Obama, it, it formed um, in a sense to protest Bush, actually. Um, so it operates, um, and, and very wisely, it seems to me, as a kind of uh, political gadfly, uh, whatever you think of them. I mean, they have entered politics, doesn't stand outside of politics. And uh, I think one of their concerns, you know, and, and I don't necessarily agree with their solutions to the concerns, yeah. is just what you're talking about, the kind of division between vast wealth and, and vast poverty and the 19th century, which you have at that particular time, is what we call 
thanks to Mark Twain, the Gilded Age. Yes. The Gilded Age actually starts almost during the war because, as you know, oh. um, wars, um, particularly for the victor, um, wars create a certain kind of economic boom. Yeah. You know, <laughs> the war um, people need uniforms or guns, whatever it is they need. And, uh, and then after the war, with the advent of railroads and in the 1860s and 70s, and as I said, moving of supplies and people around, um, you have a great concentration of wild, the Gilded Age, or what Vernon Harrington uh, was called the Great Barbecue. <laughs> and, um, but not everybody's at the table, certainly not. Certainly the you know, poor farmers are, you know, wow. um, in the South, you know, white and black, you know, really suffering terribly. Factory workers in the North, absolutely suffering. Settlers uh, in the West, certainly then you've got the Native American population, oh, yes. you know, not at the table by any means no, at no. all. And that's a big part of the book. We've run out of time. There's a lot more to talk about. Fascinating book, amazing characters, Ecstatic Nation, Brenda Wineapple, the publisher of HarperCollins. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. And Thanks uh, for your great questions. Great conversation. Oh, likewise. And a lot of it, as you can see, was about uh, wealth. Who gets the money? Thank you so much for being with us on the Bert Collins Show today. All right. Thanks so much. Jim and John because you had no place to go. Ain't nobody higher right here since I'm jousting down to Mexico. Reckon that learn silver trade made me see the world. Move to the city someday. Just another poor boy off to find a rich